Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, <laughs> hello and welcome to episode 4-442. I'm coming up to a good one, aren't I? Two more, I get the 4-4-4-4-4-4-4-4. It's like being on a hyperactive golf course of the Run Run Live podcast. How's everyone doing, huh? You stressed out by the year that is, 2020? Well, today we have a good show for you. Everything else may be crazy, but you can count on me. We're going to talk with veteran runner Bill Schultz about 24-hour races and other things ultra. Our friend Greg, thank you, Greg, recommended that I talk to Bill. He said he went running with Bill, and Bill has some wonderful stories. And that's that's one of the joys of running with a group. And I miss that, right? I don't get out as much. Running as a social lubricant, where you get into some great storytelling. Besides that? It's my birthday. Happy birthday to me. No, I haven't gained a new age group yet, but I'm getting close. And I think this one's going to net me 15 minutes. And the challenge that I run into, pun intended, is besides the apocalypse, many of my workouts don't lend themselves really to social runs. You know, it's not like I'm meeting you in the park for an easy 5K. I might show up and say, hey, today I got an hour and a half with 20 minutes hard, blah, blah, blah. And that, that scares people off. And I also tend to be rushed for time, right? I just want to get it done on most days. But I do have Ollie, Ollie Wally, the killer collie, with me on most runs. And he, he keeps me busy by ambushing me, playfully, I think, nipping at me and running between my legs, growling with giant pointy sticks. And speaking of Ollie... I got one of those step-in harnesses. I've been looking for something, uh, and I got this step-in harness that works really well for him. First, because he hates anything that you try to put over his head. He'll see that coming, and unless you're willing to lose some skin uh, and some blood, you're not going to get that on him. This one, you lay it on the floor, flat, hand him a couple of treats. He steps into it with the appropriate bribery. You can do anything, and you pull it up and snap it. Nothing over the head. And second... He can't slip out of it, right? The collar, he can get out of. The harness, it's safer. Uh, The rings attached to the leash are up on his back, like between his shoulder blades. So it's much better. And finally, he doesn't seem to want to pull as hard. He doesn't pull as much with that configuration as he does on the leash. He still leans into it a little bit, but it's really, it's a lot better. It's, It's a little loose on him because he's in between big dog and medium dog, but it's workable. In section one today, I'm going to talk to you folks who might be ultra curious. Yeah. In section two, I'll give you another apocalypse story. Why? Because I have them. You know, I might as well read them. I have them. I'm writing them anyhow. Might as well use them here. But, you know, I just got to pause. It is Saturday, November 7th, and today, my friends, is a momentous day. I mean, this week we have seen the culmination of something that has been years in the making. A triumph of the soul, as well as the physical world. It's a new dawn. And no longer do I have to be governed 
by the never-ending worry and stress. We have burst free of the impure and the corrupt. We are staring ahead at the bright future without the evil constraint of the past. We have remedied the dirty, corrupt, and contaminated state of our lives. Yes, today, I declare before all that this week, I finally finished painting my house. Yeah. What'd you think I was talking about? Anyhow, it took me all summer. And I did it all with a paintbrush. It looks nice. So there you go. Back to the old man in the apocalypse. The only reason this is even tangentially relevant to you in a podcast about running is that my main character, the old man, is an ultra runner. In today's chapter, I try to build the backstory with a little exposition because I thought about it. And he's a man who enters the apocalypse having lost faith in humanity. And his arc throughout the story will be how he recovers that faith and triumphs, right? So I signed up for the NaNoWriMo, because, you know, it's free, <laughs> which is a daily writing challenge in November. And people try to write a few thousand words every day, and they finish the month with a first draft of a novel. I'm not looking to write a novel. I think my plan is probably just to write a podcast. And I really don't have time to sit and write for six hours a day, but I can give it a few minutes every morning and see what I come up with, stitch together the stories and characters that I've been playing with. So my current plan is to get enough of the story put together into a narrative that I can build a new podcast feed around it. And the first pass will just be me reading into audio. And if it gets any kind of traction... And if I can build a community around it, I can then organize it into another format, a radio play in the second version. And we'll see how it goes. For me, it's a big goal. It's a big risk. Right? What if people hate it? I think that's one of the keys of life, isn't it? We talked about ultra running today. How many people do you think sign up for that first ultra event thinking they have no chance of failure, saying, hey, I am guaranteed to finish this 100 miler, this 50 miler? Of course not. Every one of them doubts whether they can do it. They don't know. It's uncharted territory. And that's the beauty of taking big risks. If you have a good chance to fail, you're guaranteed to learn something along the way. You're guaranteed to find your edge. And even if you fall a little short, you'll move your set point and be ready for even bigger things next time. And that's how I'm treating this effort in November. A bit of why not and a bit of who cares. And that, my friends, is a lesson, right? Don't aim so low that you're confident you can't lose. Because if you do that, you'll never win either. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. For the ultra-curious, what to do next? So you want to run an ultra-marathon. Yeah. You listen to a podcast and the stories that those ultra-runners tell. They're such great adventures, right? These are worthy things that can be attempted. And they assure you, these ultra-runners, that all this ultra-stuff is really no big deal. Anybody can do it. And you start to think, well, maybe I could do that. It's a slippery slope, cowgirls and cowboys. You'd best think about what you're about to step into. On the one hand, you've got your grand adventure that will push you to your edge. You'll discover things about yourself that you never knew. You'll be stripped clean and reborn through the process. And on the other hand, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears involved and probably some diarrhea and vomiting as well. What are some of the things you need to think about as you peer longingly down the ultra rabbit hole? Well, first is probably distance, which sounds like it should be obvious, but technically anything longer than a marathon is an ultra marathon. But there is a big difference between 50K and 100 miles. A 50K is really just a long marathon. You'll be done in a few hours. A 100-miler is going to require seeing a second sunrise. The commitment involved is considerably different in terms of both training and execution. 
And some of the more cantankerous ultra-running populace will only consider 100 miles or more an ultra-distance. But that's their own lack of self-awareness. That shouldn't bother you. And it seems a bit ironic that those who spend so many lonely hours in athletic introspection would denigrate others who are trying to get into the distance. It's an individual thing. Ultra-running, ultra-distance is really about going beyond going to your edge, and then stepping over that edge and keeping going. And your edge, well, that's specific to you. We can fall into the trap of incremental thinking in these things, like going from 5K to 10K to half to full. We might think that the path continues as 50K, 50 miles, 100K, 100 miles. There are no such rules. This is an artifact of cultural programming. You could jump right into a hundo. Nobody says you can't. There is a slower, perhaps more gentle learning curve by going incrementally. You'll learn a lot of what you need to know about running 100 miles by running a 50-mile race. You're still going beyond the edge in most cases. You'll still be pushing the time on your feet. You'll still be pushing your calories and your strength. For me, 50 miles was a great starting point. At the time, I was a middle-of-the-pack, three-ish hour marathoner, so... The effort and time wasn't outrageous. I had a good race and was out on the course for about nine hours. I was home before the sunset. I felt physically hammered, but not totally destroyed. When I finally got around to trying a hundred, at least I had a taste of what I was up against. I just had to load in more miles and learn how to run all night long. The second thing you need to figure out is, do you like roads or do you like trails? Most of the modern ultras now are run on trails. It wasn't always this way. But you can still find road or track ultras or rail trail ultras, which is a nice hybrid, a nice compromise. The trail ultras tend to also be varying degrees of technical, and technical equals hard. By, by technical, we mean surface conditions and elevation gain. But I happen to like that kind of terrain, and I find it very comforting. You know, some people, you for instance, may not. You may like a concrete sidewalk. The dirty little secret of these trail ultras, though, is that they have a surprisingly large amount of road sections in them. Typically, these are dirt roads or fire roads or country roads, but they're still roads. They're very runnable. So look at the mix of road and trail, because that can keep it interesting, too. And again, a nice compromise. So as you're considering the event, check the course and see what you're comfortable with. Read the reviews. Ask the people who have run or crewed. Is it as difficult as people say? Get specific. A 100-mile race with 5,000 feet of elevation gain could be a flat course with one mountain or a rolling course with a bunch of little hills. When I was looking for a 100-mile course for my first try, I chose something easy and point-to-point. -point. My coach recommended point-to-point -point because there's less opportunity to quit on a point-to-point. -point. So many of these races are loop course races, and they vary from a quarter-mile track to a 10- or a 20K trail loop. And it's up to you on how you think your brain and body are going to respond to stepping back out onto that loop for the 10th or 11th or 20th time at 3 o'clock in the morning. Something to consider. A third thing you might want to think about is weather, right? Rightly or wrongly, many of the traditional ultras are run in late summer, and this is hot weather. If you're not a heat runner, you might want to look for something later or, or earlier in the season. And the fact is that if you're out on a course for 24 hours, you can see many different weathers. In a technical trail race, you can climb in and out of different climate zones. And that's kind of the fun of it, right? Hot in the day in the valley, freezing at night on top of the mountain, it adds to the challenge. In general, the western and southwestern races tend to be low humidity, and the northern and eastern races tend to be higher humidity. And higher humidity for many of us means more skin loss to chafing. So consider what you're signing up for and train appropriately. A uh, fourth thing you might want to think about is how much time you have to train. So this is similar to triathlon training. Ultra running takes over your weekends, 
for four to six months. There's no shortcut to the miles. You're knocking out 40 miles on a Saturday, followed by 20 miles on a Sunday, and it chews up your life. Unless you have that kind of wiggle room, don't bite off more than you can chew. And one thing you really don't have to worry about, though, which is good, is spending a ton of money. You just need to put in the miles. Maybe some functional items of clothing, but nothing extravagant. Maybe a new pair of shoes, a tub of lube. You're good to go. And in that sense, it's very much a poor man's or woman's sport. Another thing to consider is how much you like spending time alone with yourself. With all the miles, you're going to spend a lot of time alone with yourself. Your normal running friends aren't going to join you for a 50-mile overnight training run. Honestly, I didn't mind it. Once I got into the groove, it was really meditative. As with everything in our world, there is a community around ultra runners. You can find people to share your journey with. You can go as deeply down this community rabbit hole as you are comfortable with, or not. Each event will have its own crew of hardcore groupies that will hang out with you online, even when all your normal friends have given up on you. But beware that there are some interesting characters. The ultra world is filled with interesting characters. Many of them are minorly crazy. And I say that in a positive way, because minorly crazy people can be entertaining and inspiring. It takes a bit of a broken or different person to gravitate to these distances. So hopefully I have neither encouraged nor discouraged you from chasing your personal white rabbit down that hole. If anything, I would encourage you to do the homework and see if this ultra running thing is a vehicle for you to find your edge. And now for today's featured interview. Right. Good morning. Why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and, and what you're doing? Bill Schultz, been running for about 42 years now. Started late 1978, early in 78. At the age of 26, I turned 26, and my mom said to me, a marathon's 26 miles. Why don't you go run one? So I proceeded to find one the next month. My birthday is uh, income tax day. Now, up in New England, in the Boston area, that changes a lot But uh, with the Boston Marathon. But that became a big part of my life, going to Boston and getting there and uh, yeah, doing well. And You're of that similar age group in the late 70s. It was a great crop of local distance runners, Billy Rogers and all those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up following Billy Rogers and <laughs> eating pizza with mayonnaise. That was, up, that was early. Boston was a big one for me because I failed the first time I went out. I ran in 1980, mm. you know, real quick. That, that I ran was a hot year, right? The hot year? The duel in the sun? Uh, it was a hot year. It was also the year Rosie Ruiz won, yep. which didn't do much. I failed. I dropped out at Boston College and took the uh, trolley home back to Boston with a guy by the name of George Sheehan. Who, <laughs> uh, we sat and talked on the trolley all the way home, and we jokingly talked about getting off the trolley in Hopkinton and at the square there and um, and jumping back into the race. We didn't, but I felt that I, since I failed at Boston that year, my only goal was to go to Boston. And when I got there and failed the first year, I felt that I owed that course and the history of that course a better effort. And because of that, uh, I requalified. At the time, you had to get under 250. And I requalified in 1981 at Philadelphia Marathon. And a friend of mine who I knew who had been running ultras, he said, uh, if you qualify, would you run a race that I'm, I'm putting together in January of 1982? And he bugged me about it a great deal. And I told him I would try it. If I qualified, I wanted to run under 245. If I qualified, I'd run his, his race in January. And when I ran 244 at Philadelphia in the shoot, he stopped and asked me if I would come and run. And I said, yes, I would. And that was my first 24-hour race in 1982. And uh, that got me hooked into running longer distances. Looking back, if I had finished that first Boston, I thought I would have stopped. I didn't think what else was, was there to do. And yeah. uh, because I owed it a better race. And with that, I got involved in uh, uh, long ultra marathons. Yeah, I had a similar experience in my first Boston, Bill. It kicked my ass so bad that I was so mad at myself for 
I, just for underestimating it. Well, I was a teacher and Boston's always on Monday, third Monday in April. And I had to take a personal day from work. And the uh, gym teacher, a friend of mine, got the entire school to do a big pep rally for me as I left on Friday. So when I came back on Monday or Tuesday morning and they asked how I did and I told them I had dropped out, they did not let me forget it. They, they, uh, they gave me a pretty good razzing over it. So but I had to look, go back. Reel it, reel it back a little bit. The George Sheehan you were on the trolley with, is that yeah. the George Sheehan? It is the George Sheehan. And when I told people about it, when I told my running club about it when I got home, they all laughed and said, oh, no, you didn't. And sure enough, about two or three months after Boston, when George Shane's article came out in Runner's World, he talked about <laughs> riding home on the trolley with this guy who was me and talking about our, our failure at, at Boston that year. So, yeah. <laughs> See, that's George a great Shane. story. Greg told me that you had some great stories. That's a great story. Well, it, but it was really the basis for why I got into running longer distance. I, I had to requalify, and that got me into a 24-hour race. Yeah, so. I had a similar experience. I had to requalify, so I learned so much that summer. Yep. Well, I really was doing it wrong, and I had to redo it. And as Sheen used to say, uh, running was an experimentation of one, you. <laughs> so. Yeah, yep, experiment of one. Yep, that's exactly it. I'll have to bring up all those George Sheehan quotes. May he rest in peace. I was also looking at your done to dust to done ultra series that you do. You guys didn't yeah. pull that off this year. You, you uh, didn't do it this year, we but did, you. it, it, it seems like a really interesting. Let me just set the context here. You guys sure. do a 24-hour race on basically a track at a high school. And you say that would be a horrible experience, but people come from all over the world to this little race to see, and these are world-class distance runners, and it's a qualifier for the U.S. ultra team, and there's a 12-hour version and a 50K version as well. So the whole experience makes the 50K look like a 5K. These people go out there and they knock it out in four hours while the rest of these guys are running 150 miles. Originally, 1984, uh, I got accepted into my first six-day race. Now, I said I'd made uh, my first 24-hour race in 1982. Well, by 1984, that 24-hour race had become a 48-hour race, and I got the credentials to be uh, accepted into a six-day race in 1984. And I wanted a training run. So my local running club, the Delco Roadrunners Club, we got together and we put on a 12-hour race. And the name of the race became Dawn to Dusk. Easy enough, 12 hours. Eventually, that became a 24-hour event, and we ran that from 1984 to 2001, 18 years. We then took a break, and then I brought it back in 2014, and it was back as Dawn to Dust to Dawn, known as D3 by many people. And we've been very fortunate to have, uh, we've now had 24 American records set on the course, and we've had uh, several world records set on the course tremendous runners. We had six people from our race ran at the 2019 IAU 24-hour world championship. And six yep. people had who had run at our race had been there. Yep. And uh, it's another thing that people may not realize, right? And I always make this joke that no matter what it is, any activity you can think of, there's a world championship for that activity somewhere. And the same is true yes. with uh, 24-hour races, right? There's a whole... Yes structure and organization around uh, the Olympics, essentially, for that activity. The USA Track and Field uh, sponsors the uh, long-distance running, and they have 50-kilometer, 100-kilometer, and 24-hour national team. The winner at our race last year in 2019 to qualify to go to the uh, world championships went uh, 161 miles. So it's not like they're taking it easy. They're out there putting in some big miles. Yeah. And these are incredible athletes because these folks are doing it. I swear they're doing this stuff every weekend. I don't know how they do it. They never stop. Some of them, uh, you can only put out so many A efforts, A race. There are other races. You might want a shorter... (laughs) You mentioned the 50K. The 50K is really considered, I don't say a sprint, but you know, they're doing four-hour 50Ks or four-and-a-half-hour yeah. 50Ks. And if you're trying to do it at a national level, four hours is, is actually relatively slow for national level and, and world level. Yeah, so, yeah. And, now- <laughs> uh, and I saw you had some fairly what in the sport would be big names. Pete Kostelnik uh, there, the guy who ran a cr- who set the cross USA record. And then he rolled uh, out of that and ran your race. Well, Pete Kostelnik is a, is a friend of mine. We've jokingly uh, 
gone back and forth. Pete does have the Guinness Book of World Record for running across the United States in 42 plus days. I joke with Pete that when he ran his record of running across the United States, he didn't touch either ocean, which yeah. is unique to the Guinness Book of World Records, that you can have the world record for running across a country and not see either ocean. In 1990, when I ran across the United States, I made sure I touched both oceans. Yeah, I would think you'd want to. You run that far, you'd want to, right? I I did. <laughs> I felt it was important to put my foot in the in the Pacific when I left and in the Atlantic when I finished. It was different back in 19. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because uh, you probably are friends with McGilvery as well then because he's done that a few times. I don't know him. I do know Pete Kostelnik. I know Phil McCarthy real well. I, a friend of mine, Camille Hearn, the world record holder for 24 Hours Women who ran 167 miles last year at the World Championships. She uh, was the uh, top runner in the world. She set the world record at 167. She's running the Havelina 100-mile race today. It's out in the desert in Arizona. Yep, another famous ultra. Yep. So that's the other interesting thing here during the apocalypse that we're currently in. I like to call it the zombie apocalypse. And you're in Pennsylvania, so you got to get out and vote. Your vote could make a difference. I'm in Massachusetts. My My vote vote doesn't really make a difference, but we won't talk politics. My vote's already in. All right, good. The thing about ultra running is they're managing, the ultra athletes are managing to stay pretty busy. I mean, there's not a ton of events, but there's enough events that you can stay busy. Because if you think about an ultra marathon, it's, you know, it's a couple hundred people stretched out over a hundred mile course. There's not a lot of risk to that, right? Well, right now, a lot of the trail runs are still going on. And although many people think that an ultra marathon has to be a trail run, trail running ultras only really came into prominence in the uh, mid 90s. Before that, most ultras were on the road or on a track. Most of the ultras that I've run have been track ultras. Hmm. And although somebody might think that's boring, in a track ultra, there are many things that keep you in the race. Uh, A good timing system where you can keep an eye on your pace and everything. The fact that you can get aid every 400 meters or in the old days, every quarter mile on a track. Yeah. The fact you constantly see people, there are pluses and minuses to it. For sure. Yes. I just ran my virtual Boston in my neighborhood and my neighborhood is a 1K loop and I set up my truck and I stopped every K to have a drink. Right. And at the end of the day, I found that added like 40 minutes, 40 plus minutes to my run. So if you're doing the same thing on a track, you're adding hours to your run. Right. Not at all. On a track, you usually have a crew person standing there handing it to you as you go by, just as you would have an aid station in a marathon. If you're at Boston and you're going through the aid station, if you stop at the aid station or the water stops at Boston, it's going to add time. You want to get into that water stop and out as fast as you can. You're going to do the same thing on a track. And just like Boston, I'm sure, Christy, when you go to Boston, you're looking to break two hours and 10 minutes. Yeah, Um, yeah, that's me. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be happy to do that for the half right now. But yeah. there are people that run slower than everybody else. And you'll yeah. get the same thing. Track. If, if you want to get big miles, you're not there to sit and stop at the aid stations. You're there to move. Yeah. So Yeah. It just surprised me how much time I wasted two or three you, minutes at you, a pop, right? There's a very old uh, expression of beware the chair. If yeah. you stop at the aid station and you sit down, you usually waste a lot of time. Once yeah. you sit down, beware the chair. So the other changes I've seen in ultra running over the 20 plus years I've been doing this as well is it used to be sort of very, very much a fringe sport, right? We're only a couple of crazies out there. And it was usually guys who had been pretty good runners, but not top top tier runners, but pretty good runners. But they found that when once they got longer, they were able to do better, right? Or women, same thing, right? They were pretty good runners, but when they stretched that out, they were able to win sort of by attrition. But recently, I see a lot of like very top tier runners going to the ultra distance. And it's become more of like a race, right? More, more like Well, a, I think when I look back on it, one of the big things to ultra running came about through marathon. And back in the mid 90s, Oprah ran a marathon. And many, many people said, geez, if Oprah can do it, I can do it. Yeah. There was time when at Boston, they started taking the scaffolding down at four hours, four and a half hours. Yep. Now, if you run a marathon in four hours now, you're in the top 50%. You're way up there. There are people that are taking five, six, seven, 
seven plus hours, eight hours to run a marathon. That just didn't happen back in the day. People, you, you went to run, you went to race. And a lot of that was in the mid nineties, people started going out on trail runs. I was never a big trail person. I don't like falling down and I didn't have enough speed to, to run trail that fast. I just couldn't understand why somebody would come back from a trail 50 kilometers and say, oh, I did it in seven and a half hours. What a great time. It just seemed very slow. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people said, well, we're now running in the woods and having fun in the woods and look at nature and everything slowed down. Yeah. So running in the woods slowed a lot of times down. And, but, well, and I, yet, by default, when you go out into especially the technical trails and the more technical they are, the more fun they are. And that can take two to three minutes off your mile, right? Oh, technical uh, trails, especially uh, with the elevation can gain. Five, can take five to 10. Yeah, yeah. I know back, again, back in the day, one of the words, and I, I have a friend of mine who I joke with all the time, he talks about how much vert did you do? Vert? You mean <laughs> how many hills? You, you ran a hill. Yeah, but what was the vert? <laughs> I, yep. Nobody, I don't anybody ever talked about the vert. They talked about they ran a hill. <laughs> yeah. No, it was a hilly course. Yep. Yeah. So, so with the uh, ultra running scene, this is an interesting point in people's lives because a lot of people had these cadences. The mid-packers had these cadences where in the spring they'd run marathon XYZ. And then in July they'd run 10K with a peach tree or something, right? They had these cadences, sure. these like milestone races in their life. And all that stuff got yep. wiped off the calendar this year. So people are in these transition points. So if you look at this and people might be ultra curious at this point in their lives, what's your advice to the ultra curious? Pick a goal. It's always nice to have a goal. Pick a goal. Do your homework. If you know your course is going to be on a technical trail, if you're running a trail, then get your training in on technical trails. If you know it's going to be on the road, then do long runs on the road. Pick a goal, do your homework, and be sensible with your goal. Pick an obtainable goal and go get it. You might want to run that two hour and 10 minute marathon, but if you can't break two hours and 30 minutes, you're not going to run 210. If you can't break three out, so you got to pick an obtainable goal, build up to it. And if you're doing ultra marathons today and hope to do well, you're doing a lot of miles. You're doing over 3000 miles a year. You're doing 70, 80, 90 miles a week. If yeah. not, you're not going to be able to be competitive. You can finish. And I often tell people there's a difference between completing a race and competing in a race. And the difference is the letter L. That's the difference between completing and competing. If you're completing, you can do it. You can finish. If it's 50 miles or 100 miles, it might not be in the time you want, but you can complete it. If you're competing, that's different. You're going for time and you better prepare to go for time. Yeah. Just as you would for a 5K as you would for a 5k or a half marathon or a marathon. Yeah. You have to yeah. do your home. Yeah. It's interesting because I think it, it all scales. You know, you take a basic training plan to run a fast 5k or a 10k or a marathon yep. that scales. So you're saying is you're still going to be putting in the speed work. It's just going to be a different form of speed work, the quality. Yes. To finish that. And then there's a fair amount of, um, with the altars as well, there's a fair amount of, um, you have to understand your body's capabilities over the quote unquote long run, right? Because there's a fair amount of nutrition and how to not burn yourself out at 12 hours in and that kind of stuff. But it's definitely an experience. And I, I love the training. I love putting in those monster weeks because it, there's just something about putting in a, a monster week like that, especially at my age, your age, that uh, just makes you feel good about yourself, makes you feel alive. You've got to be mentally ready. If you're trying to do your best, you better prepared. For yeah. Sounds like George Sheehan again. Yes. <laughs> so there you go. So I, I see uh, you on your Facebook page. You got a lot of people wearing swag from your w races. Is this a thing? Do you have a, a race store or something? You have a, a uh, boutique? We have not so much a boutique, but we do have uh, anytime we have a dawn to dusk and D3 and we have stuff left over. If somebody's looking to purchase it, you can pick it up. We try to come up with a different piece of swag every year. We've had blankets. We've had beanies. We've had uh, long sleeve and short sleeve. We've had duffel bags. We've had bandanas. We've had a, a, a lot of things. We have a, a, I'll say we have a special item for the next, our next D3 going to dusk will be our 25th anniversary. So yep. we're excited about that. And uh, this year we couldn't have it. And I haven't uh, heard much from the school district if, if we can have it for 2021 yet. So what, we're when's hoping that, gonna, that. When's it scheduled for? May? 
It is scheduled for May. I mentioned earlier how I'd been accepted into the 1984 six-day, and I had to find a race to run, and I set up Dawn to Dusk in May as a training run. The race was in June. Uh, it also goes back to my very first marathon. My mom, who very nicely had said to me, it's 26 miles, you're 26 years old, go run one. The first race I could find it in April after my birthday was the Yonkers Marathon, which was in May. And my mom was upset because it was on Mother's Day. And I said, well, at least you'll know where I am and I'll be thinking of my mom. So it's always the second Sunday that weekend in May, Mother's Day weekend. Yeah, and I so, suppose it's it's kind of like... Um the marathon world where you look for good qualifying events and that's a good qualifying event for the ultra guys. If you're looking to qualify for the national team, our race is a good one. Yeah. And does that count for like a Leadville or any of those other ones no. where you need? No, Leadville's trail. So yeah. They're not going to accept anybody off of a, off of a off uh, track. Okay. Tra- so you're not uh, getting into had- Western States with that time. All right. No. It might get you on to the, uh, and the fact that we have an IAU, an International Association of Ultra Running label, it it enables you to um, be eligible for world records. And we've had several world bests at at our race. We have two women in the 60 to 64 age group and the 65 to 69 age group. They've set world bests there. We've had um, uh, Pam Smith set a world best of uh, 14 hours and nine minutes. Back in 2016, she said a world best at our race. So we've had those kind of performances. And uh, like I said, 24 American records have been set uh, at our race. All right. So I'm going to move you towards the exit here and we'll let get on with our Saturdays and our beautiful, uh, sure. cool Saturdays here. <laughs> you got a website for all this stuff somewhere or anything like that? The biggest thing I'd say would be if you're on Facebook is to go to the Dawn to Dusk Ultras. It's there where we have a group Facebook page. You can find out all the information about our race. It'll be in May. And once we're uh, accepted by the school district, I'll put every, all the information up on there, and uh, that'll send you to a link to register. So, yeah. So uh, we're looking forward to it. 24-hour race. Yikes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, I, it's Again, it's our, our very first year, I had a, a grandmother sign up. This was back in 1984. And she said, you mean I can stop and I can walk and stuff? And we said, sure, it's on the track. And she said, I can bring my grandchildren? She said, yeah. we said, sure. You, you know, And she stopped and walked and finished fourth overall. She went 54 miles in 12 hours. That's great. And she was fourth. So. That's great. All right. Well, it's been fun talking to you this morning, Bill. Can I leave you with one thing? Thanks. Sure. Okay. When I did my transcon, I came up with a little prayer. And the prayer reads pretty simply. It says, may the sun forever shine upon your face. May the wind forever blow upon your back. May your goals forever be in sight. May your beliefs forever give you strength. And may your spirit forever run free. I like to try and start and end all of my days like that. So That's your mantra for your transcon. We'll have to talk about your transcon sometime. That's in my wish list, but uh, I'm still I- working. I'm not retired yet, but uh, that's on my wish list. I got to figure out how to do it. Well, I took a sabbatical from work. <laughs> yeah. So, All right, man. Have a good day. Thank you, Chris, very much. I greatly appreciate your uh, interest. All right. Cheers. Bye now. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The old man looked around. The river, the smoke, the light drizzle and the soft hump of the body making its way downstream to feed the rats of Atlanta. He'd seen his share of death. He'd seen worse than this when he was in Africa and the Far East where, until not too long ago, death still stalked the muddy streets in the old ways. Disease, warlords, indiscriminate natural disasters and unfeeling politics. And that's when he'd given up on humanity. Humanity was built on a despoiled pile of human bones, and he had given up. He'd ride out what's left of his life as a man outside that pile of bones. He thought about an article he read in an archaeological magazine about a pile of bones they'd found in Kenya. These bones were over 10,000 years old. A small group of individuals rounded up, slaughtered, and dumped in a pit. This was 8,000 years before Jesus and the Romans. The first traces of human activity were rife with internecine murder. He didn't miss the irony now that he'd gotten his wish in this new world of the apocalypse. 
Humanity was back to the level of 10,000 years ago with roaming bands, small groups looking to survive, and murder was as good an option as any. The old man wasn't as old as he looked or pretended to be. He found it useful to fade into the background, to be non-threatening in this world. If the scraps of humanity haunting this place knew his real capabilities, it might be inconvenient and dangerous. At just under six foot tall, the old man was not imposing and didn't look like the athlete he was. Skinny and balding with a slight pot belly, no one would suspect that he was one of the top endurance athletes in his age group. Perhaps if they looked closer at the ropey muscles twitching under the loose skin of his thighs, they might wonder, but they never did. Turns out being tough and able to move long distances by foot was pretty much the job description of a survivor in the apocalypse. He'd retired from real life a few years back anyhow, so it really didn't make any difference to him. He'd written them all off. He'd seen this as inevitable. He just wasn't expecting it in his lifetime. The old man shook his head and spat into the muddy grass beside the river. He'd have to move. This place was too much on the beaten path out of the city. From the beginning of time, people had followed the rivers. They were the highways of humanity. If he wanted to avoid humanity, he'd have to find a different route. He put his light pack together and stood with a groan. Squinting upriver, he thought he saw some movement. A mangy group of two-legged beasts emerged from around the bend. He had wanted to continue south anyhow, but had hoped to avoid following the river through the city. They saw him and yelled something, looked like six of them maybe, men. He turned and began to move. They picked up their pace and closed ground. He took a drink from his bottle and a bite of jerky from his pocket in his shorts. He stretched it out a little, enlivening the pace to what he thought should do the trick. The group behind him stopped running and started walking with some more shouts and protestations. One of the many ironies in his life was that he had been a bookish, chubby, and non-athletic kid. Always studying, never any time for sports, which he considered the games of lesser boys and men. He notched his pace down and looked around to see where the sun was now. It was low and to his left, so he was still running south. He would put 20 miles between him and his pursuers by the end of the day, but usually only the first mile mattered. The old man began singing an old country song that had popped into his head. Something about the evils of liquor and whorehouses, and that made him laugh. Turns out, bioengineering was just a little bit more evil, and there probably wasn't a song about that. There was a car in the river ahead. He slowed to let the panorama paint itself. He had learned to do this. By default, he let his mind drift and become unfocused when he was running alone in the woods, and sometimes he had to mentally slap himself back into awareness. The wrecked car partially submerged, seemed to have come from the overpass above. That plunge was probably enough to kill the driver. One more bag of bones for the humanity's pile of bones. He knew about bones. He knew about blood. He knew most of what made the fragile human body work. Not because he was some sort of macabre ghoul, but because he had been a doctor one of the best, top of his class, coveted residency, the culmination of all that studying, and what he thought was his dream. He had married young and had kids because that's what you did when you were a renowned physician. You did that so no one could accuse you of being self-centered and a careerist with a god complex. It was in the playbook. He felt a stab of pain, a twinge of guilt, as he thought of the mousy young woman in his wedding bed and the two young heads in his Long Island study. And he shook his head, water under the bridge. He couldn't change any of it, didn't want to. All these people, his wife, his kids, his colleagues, 
those men futilely chasing him, the poor sot in the crashed car, the Paleolithic wanderers with their heads smashed, thrown into that long-ago pit in the Rift Valley, all the bones on the pile of bones that was humanity's legacy. He'd quit the game. They couldn't get him anymore. He wasn't playing. Humanity was no longer his problem. If they wanted to die or live or kill each other in the apocalypse, he could care less. His life was forward motion. He was waiting for death with open arms when death came for him to take his bones. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run 24 hours straight, maybe even set a world record to the end of episode 4-442 of the Run Run Live podcast. I would like to introduce you to Tony. Tony. Tony's out there. He's listening. Tony is that guy. The one who binge listened through most of the Run Run Live podcast recently. I just talked to him today a bunch and via email. Uh, and he said he, he started at 269 because that's how far iTunes go back. And I said, no, no, no. There's another. They're all out there. So I got to tell him how to find those old, really awful quality audio ones. And see what he thinks of those. But I find this whole thing fascinating. And I have to get him on the on the show, on the Zoom call, to chat about it. Because I do the same thing with some of these other podcasts I listen to, mostly history podcasts. And it's a weird bit of time traveling because the author lives 10, 12 years of their life while you may be only listening through it in a couple of months. For you, when listening, you may listen to four or five episodes in a row while painting on a Sunday. And you get the compressed narrative of six months of the author's life. And then you hit the end, the end of the line. And eventually you run out of fresh content. And there's this, this moment of exhilaration and sadness when you realize that the narrative has now come to an end or slowed to normal time. Because some of these histories I listen to, they only put out a podcast like every month. And in that time... You're listening to this, you tease out a bit of the author's real character, behind the character of the avatar that they project into the podcast. So anyhow, I find that interesting. My training, I'm training away at my off-season pace. Three to four easy runs a week, some core work on the off days. I've been super busy with work. Had to stop riding my bike because we got a cold snap where the the temperatures crashed down to below 20 degrees Fahrenheit, and we got a few inches of snow last weekend. And now this weekend, it's 70 and sunny again. So I can finish up the yard work, finish painting the house, get all those chores done that I was trying to get done before it snowed. And we moved the time back last weekend as well. So this means it's brighter in the morning, which is great for taking Ollie out for his walk in the morning. But it's conversely dark at 4.30, and we'll basically stay there until the winter solstice in December. And so I went out into the trails a couple times this week since the time change in the dark with Ollie, and it's tough running. My eyes aren't as good as they used to be, and with the trails covered in leaves, it's really hard to navigate the technical bits. Not super relaxing when you are constantly fighting the trail and trying not to, you know, break an ankle or fall down. But it's okay. You know, looking around, looking back over the last decade of running like Tony got to do, I've got a lot to be grateful for. You know, I'm still out there. I'm still functional, even if it doesn't come as fast or as easy as it once did. I'll give you a quick programming note here following up on the last episode I got a taker for the free, tra free train phone vest that I was talking about. Still have to write that review. But I still have that super small Aonji vest that would make an excellent gift for the schoolgirl runner in your life if you have one. Super small. Great vest. Super small. No bladder, no bottles, just the vest. Uh, but it would be, it's, it's a good vest. I have a, I have a man-sized one, and I really like it. Free for the ask. And the entire uh, Jack Campbell Lost Fleet series, or most of it, if you're, you've got a science fiction fan in your house, I'll send you those. You can give those for the holidays. That's probably, what, seven or eight books. 
paperbacks. And this week, I'll also include the 20th and final song off of Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the Nays. It's my friend Frank's band, Love It or Hate It. It's my podcast. I can do what I want. Any other starving artists out there that want to contribute some music to play at the end of future shows, I'm not promising anything, but feel free to reach out. As always, I am CYKT Russell, Chris, Yellow, King, Tom, Russell, two S's, two L's, at gmail.com. I have a quick tip for you folks who may be stressed out at work. I discovered this this week. You know, you have to take those all these remote video calls, right? And I've tested it. It works. You can have a browser window open in the background and play meditation music in the background of your calls, and no one can hear it but you. Seriously, while you're getting yelled at by your boss or some unhappy customer, you can have calming music in the background. It really changes the tenor of some calls. Just search YouTube for something like happy morning meditation music. You'll see what I mean. And I know... I know, I know this is and can be a stressful time. Things get tough at work or in life. And as you have challenges, it's easy to slip into scarcity and negativity. One prominent symptom of this is when you start to complain. You start to tell people why everything is awful and all the things that are being done poorly by all the stupid and lazy and incompetent people. If you see the people you interact with, or even if you yourself start to complain, it's time. That's a symptom. It's time to act. Because complaining is non-intentional. It's being the victim. It's basically saying you have no control. And you always have control. You have control of what you say and how you say it. You have control of the questions that you ask. So my assignment for you this week is to watch out for the complaining. Look for it. And be alert to where you start to complain, or your group starts to complain. And this will be your trigger. This will be the alert in your mental inbox. And when you hear that complaint, you're going to take control. You're going to be intentional. You're going to flip that narrative. You're going to ask better questions. What can I do to make this better? And you're going to vocalize those thoughts within those bitch sessions. When you find yourself in them, you're going to say, To the complaint committee, either the real-life one or the one in your head, hey, we need to focus on what is going well, what we're thankful for, what our goals are, and we need to intentionally stay positive and work to learn from these challenges and get better in the long run. Because this, my friends, is an opportunity for leadership, and we need to keep our eyes on the prize, and in doing so, we'll set an example for others. And I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. He's got one-on-one with the Lord. He's got one-on-one with the Lord. He's got one-on-one with the Lord. And you cannot deny that. He's the light, he's the living sun, he's Brian Jeff.